Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles in the USA. And now a word from our sponsor. Oh, that's me. Through our winery, Centralis Wine, we sponsor this podcast. If you want to learn more about Centralis Wine, go to centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S, wine.com. My guest for this episode is Ellen Cavalli. Ellen is the co-apple grower gleaner, forager, cider maker, and owner of Tilted Shed Cider Works in Sonoma, California, or Windsor. She has a past career in publishing and continues to have a hand in the zine called Malice. That's M-A-L-U-S, like apples, you know. And I just discovered Malice, and I love it. It does in text what I try to do with audio, and I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. At 10 years in the business, Tilted Shed has achieved OG status in the West Coast new wave of cider, and this conversation with Ellen is about to show you why. Ellen is as entertaining as she is insightful, and the laughs and pearls of wisdom continue in rapid fire throughout this entire uncensored and unedited conversation. This is natural podcasting at its best, with zero intervention, so you get the full, undisgorged flavor of this scintillating scion of cider, this oracle from the orchard, this diva of dry farm deliciousness. I'll say no more so that you can get on with the show. Enjoy. We'll try, I'll do my best, and we'll... If this sucks, drop it. I Drop it. I see, <laughs> I see a recording in progress. I see this happening. <laughs> You I'm hitting record. So sneaky. Hi. <laughs> Ellen, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> I can cut out the first, you know, 30 seconds there. No, um, this is going to be our best spot right now. We're doing like a stand up comedy show online. Ellen and Adam, let's go. Okay. I, I wish I had started before you started talking about how about them apples, though. That would have been a good sound bite. To catch yeah well don't name this this uh podcast how about them apples <laughs> don't do it shed. Oh, you know what else? Shed cider works how about them? how about okay. cider house rules how about not let's have some creativity <laughs> it's anyway. yeah wow i mean it's crazy so yeah just the state of journalism around cider <laughs> um man it's it's true though it's I mean, we, I, I, you know, we were just saying it's, there's a lot of, uh, the people that we're relying on to tell our story don't know anything about what we're doing. Like they really don't know the ins and outs or the hows and wherefores. And, and then you're getting cider house rules. Um, yeah. Articles. Well, I mean, you know, I started a zine, right? Do you know this? Did I don't know you? How much no, tell me. Okay. Let's tell, I don't so, consider that I know nothing. This whole podcast, you're going to need to really edit this because it's going in and a it's not even starting off like a normal podcast, but, <laughs> but why would it? It's me. Right. Yes. So, I mean, I come from a publishing background, magazines, books, nonfiction, right? That's, yeah. that is my background. 25 years awesome. doing that. And I started out in the zine world back okay. in San Francisco in the mid nineties. And, you know, a lot of times and this happens with cider and it can happen with any sort of um, category or interest, right? Is uh, somebody else sets the narrative. 
somebody else, you know, is in charge of the messaging, you know, who controls the media controls the message. Right. And zines were a reaction against that where we're like, you know, I don't need to work with some New York publishing house. That's, um, you know, funded by some billionaires, you know, and they're trying to sell advertising and X, Y, Z, you know, reject that. And that's what I loved about it. It was a little bit raw. It's, um, it's, it's definitely kind of edgy and, um, in some respects uncensored, but thoughtful. And I come from that background. And so, you know, I'd been, um, I had, I had moved to books over time, um, but I still always loved both the format, the print format, and the ethos of the zine world. And so after, I don't know, geez, it was, we started in 2011, uh, Tilted Shed. And, you know, as I'm saying, every single article was the exact same thing. And every single headline was the exact same thing. Oh, is is it made out of, does it have alcohol? Um, (laughs) You know, know. uh, is it always sweet? You know, can we, uh, what would you pair it with? I'm just like, why do we have the three? Oh, oh. And my least favorite. Oh, did you know that the founding fathers made cider? Did you know John Adams (laughs) drank a tankard of cider every morning? Did you know that Thomas Jefferson had a cider orchard? And and not only are those tropes, first of all, extremely reductive and repetitive, yeah, but they're wrong. And you are in a lot of ways, especially with this founding father's colonialism um, background, you're perpetuating, you know, this patriarchy, this white colonial patriarchy from the 1700s. When I, as a woman, wouldn't have any rights during that time, do you think I want to look back at that time as the halcyon era of cider? (laughs) No. Do you think Black people want to look back at that time as the halcyon era of cider? No. You know? So why are the white men (laughs) with this colonial perspective creating the narrative about cider when cider as a whole is actually a very, you know, egalitarian thing. We have a, probably half and half women and men drinking cider, making cider involved in the production and marketing of it. So why are we keep telling these stories about these dudes in old wigs who are enslaving people, you know, and, and <laughs> subjugating women? Why? You know, I erasing totally the natives populations. Why are we doing that? So I just got really tired of it. And as you can tell, Adam, I still am. Um, Totally. You know, and it's funny, you're not not alone. I mean, I'm right there with you. But I didn't have this experience of being a cider maker 10 years ago or or even five years ago. And I mean, some would argue it's still tough today. But wouldn't you say that things are getting a bit better in terms of Expl- explaining like you don't quite have to explain as much anymore when you're talking about cider or, or do you disagree do you think it's still just as hard well uh i don't explain so a lot of that is choice right right, <laughs> right. so i can choose to respond to those questions or i can pretty much ignore them 
and I've chosen to ignore them. <laughs> so, so it, or, or turn it on its head. So as I was saying, you know, I come from the zine background and that informs right. a lot about how I approach storytelling, you know, messaging, telling people about truth and about perspectives of different, maybe um, things that are undervalued, underlooked, underappreciated. So in 2018, I started my own little zine called Malice. It's a print quarterly. It's still out there. And we started doing articles on like, you know what? Let's talk about the enslaved people who made Thomas Jefferson cider. Let's talk about women in the cider industry. Let's talk about these issues, um, you know, uh, 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 Native uh, Americans and what happened in the land displacement and that, you know, the cider community was part of that and is trying to, you know, um, address that, rectify it and be part of reparations. And I know you talked to Steve at South Hill and got into a little bit about that. Or, you know, we talk about wildly different things, like let's talk about seedlings, apples and why we should go into foraging and let's talk about you know regenerative agriculture and and all sorts of topics and then also just super geeky stuff like why are red flesh apples red and why is that cool so you know it's all (laughs) over the board and i think part what i'm trying to say is we have a choice to create the narrative we want as well so yeah i can complain about it all day long and i will (laughs) but I also am just like, then change it, then change it. So when I get people asking me those questions, I pretty much don't answer it anymore. I go like, no, you know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go back and talk about the history of cider and why they should respect it because it's part of American heritage. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about it as it is now. You know, yeah. what is it impact on the community, on the environment, on agriculture? How does it bring pleasure? How do you combine pleasure and principle? Let's talk about the current topics. Yes, the things in the past happened in the past, but I, I want to go forward. I can't stay there. So I set that narrative forward. So, no, if people come to me and ask, you know, remedial questions, I'll give them a very quick remedial answer. And then I'm going to challenge them with something new. Or we're just going to say, like, what do you think? How does it taste? Da, 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 da. Like, let's connect on those levels. And then with Malice, I'm no longer, no longer the editor. My, my friend Darlene Hayes is the editor, but I'm still involved. You know, that's where we also sort of like challenge people to think deeper, challenge them to think broader. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what, you know, cider at this moment is doing. So going back to your question, I'm trying to remember, but what (laughs) happened, you know, 10 years ago and have things changed? Yes, they've changed. They definitely have. There's been definitely, um, you know, a gradual improvement or elevation in cider IQ. Yeah. Um, But that, what's also been happening is there's been a, uh, a fluidity and um, a an expansion in the interests of cider by other people, for example, wine people. So you know, when I started, it was it was there was no hmm, how to explain it. It was just like you're either beer or cider or wine, right? And um, there were 
you know, just a handful of producers and cider and you're knocking it out and wine is the enemy and beer is the enemy because we're all fighting over this little tiny shelf space. I mean, for cider, it's, a, it's, it's the, you know, just a meager little shelf space and you're fighting to get recognized by the media beyond uh, apple seasons because it's always harvest season and that's the only one time anybody wants to talk about cider. Um, and so, you know, we were just sort of elbowing it out and then within the cider community, we're elbowing it out and trying to, you know, differentiate ourselves from each other. And what I've been finding over the years is I'm not looking at another alcohol category as my competitor. I'm finding so much crossover and coalescence with other makers that I think it's super liberating and exciting. And they've been adding and enhancing the experience of cider. We do co-ferments as well. We're friends with winemakers and there's been a lot of overlap and generosity. And that's what I think has is changing. And that is what I try to hold on to. Right. So I was being interviewed um, for one of like one of those, like a magazine that you're talking about where it's a very, that no one knows anything about cider and they just somehow got in touch with me and wanted to talk about it. And they're asking me these like larger issues and, you know, I wasn't going to go and default to like, yes, this cider, semi-dry cider tastes good with goat cheese. You know, I wasn't going to fall and I wasn't going to lapse into it. I wanted to challenge. I wanted to broaden their horizons and talk about, you know, how exciting it is right now. We're, you know, we don't have to be dogmatic about it and we don't have to. So I've been really excited about just the last maybe couple of years seeing cider makers and us among them who were were very much like only apples, everything else is inferior. You know what I mean? Because you had to be that way. You had to champion apples because no one else was going to. I live in a place yeah. here where people bulldoze orchards on the regular to plant vineyard. You see right. these hundred year old, beautiful organic orchards that have been there and have gone through so much. They weather all the droughts, fire, flood, you name it. And then someone comes in, bulldozes it down and puts it in a vanity Pinot, like another vanity Pinot vineyard. So if I don't champion these apples, who's going to? And if I don't show that they can make something beautiful, who's going to? You know, so there's a very, you know, deep um, uh, obligation to apples. So for so long, I was the apple person. And I, you know, I thought every, I was like, "Eh, no beer, wine, eh. I know a few winemakers, you're nice and everything, but that's not where it is. But (laughs) But I feel like my my championing of apples, you know, can also come with the with an expansion of our community. And so there's a lot of natural winemakers here uh, in Northern California, um, here in Sonoma County, who at first, you know, maybe dabbled in apples because their red grapes were uh we're a loss because of smoke taint, right? So that's a real big yeah. problem or because they had a loss of crop due to drought. I mean, we're in climate change, you know, anxiety so, up here. We are, we're dealing with yeah. a lot up here. And so you have to be really nimble and the apples are super resilient. 
Um, and so they'll dabble in it just as an aside, you know, just like, I better fill something out. And then they start getting excited about it too. They understand why these are beautiful. They understand why they're worth saving, that this is an extraordinary, you know, fruit that can be transformed through the magic of fermentation into something that's beautiful and sublime that, that, that wine grapes can't do. Everything has, you know, its own offering. So I've been really excited by why I see that, that maybe, you know, the, some good friends of ours are, are doing, you know, um, co-ferments. We do co-ferments now. We've been doing them for a few years. And I just think that that is where I love to see cider going, where it, um, it transcends this like very specific category or shelving or demographic and it's just really becomes people who love to explore their food shed, explore fruit, explore the dynamism that's here in our agriculture and our terroir, because that applies to everything we do. And that they really want to share the beauty of it with others. Um, and that's where I see cider going, or at least that's the part of cider. And that's the narrative that I'm going with, you know, and a lot of those folks, right, they tend to be a lot of women. Um, they might be younger. They might be queer. They might be black. You know what I mean? They are coming from yeah. all different perspectives. And I think it's because we are all, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm an older white woman. Okay. Um, but I'm still coming from a different life experience than maybe, you know, the prototypical, uh, you know, cider maker from, 10, 15 years ago that tended to be just a white man. And, you know, we're all bringing our different experiences, our different ethos into it. And I think it translates in what we're doing with cider, with co-ferments and with wine. And that's how we're changing the narrative. I I love that. I I mean, that was, you've answered questions that I didn't, I didn't even get a chance to ask yet. Keep, keep going. I'll shut up for a second, Adam. We'll do it. No, no, that's great. Um, no, I really love I, I love everything you said, and I love hearing your perspective on all that as well. I think that's it's really important to hear that and to to bring it up and discuss it and to put it out there is just yeah. Like, I mean, I'm really excited about cider. I'm a huge cider proponent. I don't know if this is a good. I, I would love your reaction to this, but I, I've I've been saying you know I I I don't think cider gets the respect that it should and so my way of trying to put a little pin in somebody's mind about the kind of respect that i feel like it deserves is to say like it's it's america's champagne like and we should think of it that way but do you think that's uh do you think that's too you know referential uh euro referential or or do you like that comparison um, well i do agree with you that cider doesn't get the respect it deserves. I mean, it really is a Rodney Dangerfield situation still. Um, and I have found through the years, especially because I live here in wine country, that um, if a if a winemaker starts making cider, then you know the mainstream media, um, then the psalms, then everybody really starts to perk up and notice, and then yeah. oh what's tilted shed and we're like dudes <laughs> we've been here for 10 years and we've been doing this for a decade um and you know you get arkansas black and kings and black confused like 
you know, <laughs> come into, you know, so it would be, it, and I work, I, we've started working with grapes the past few years. And of course I drink wine and I have winemaker friends, but it's like, I'm the same way. I'm like, uh, what's, what's Tenturia grape? Because I just found a bunch, you know what I mean? Like I'm learning all this stuff and you have to come into it with a certain amount of humility. You know, yeah. you do learn a lot by working with certain with a certain fruit year after year after year by growing it as we do by working with it. And so um, yeah. in any case, I, I, I feel like a lot of times, yes, yeah, cider has not given, been given. Let's how should I phrase it? Has it not been given the respect it deserves or has it not earned the respect it, it deserves? I mean, you know, there's, it's there's probably it, it's, both. It's probably both, right? You know, there it, are didn't, people... it, it wasn't until, you know, this century, I don't think that the where the Renaissance, I mean, there was just the odd person and, you know, no, <laughs> they might have been odd, but I meant, <laughs> I mean, the random person who was doing a true like 750 milliliter bottled dry cider in that, you know, yeah. in that style. And the rest was this, you know, sort of leftover mass produced dessert apple, like concentrate, right. you know, angry or you know, not to, not to bad mouth any specific brands, but you know, like there, the, there are definitely mass market concentrate industrial ciders yeah. for sure. And that was cider, what people, so I, I mean, if you went in anywhere and ordered a cider, that's what you got. And that of course does not deserve respect. It doesn't taste interesting it doesn't taste good to me and you know and it's it's you know there's nothing interesting really about that you know there's no there's no thoughtfulness given to what you guys are doing for example so i i right. but then on the other hand yeah and i think it took you know that not being the norm i think it's taking it, it will continue to take that not being the norm and more production of the type that you are doing to continue to elevate cider um and yeah so I, I don't know that anybody's coming into this podcast i'd be shocked if somebody's coming into this episode with a just you know a, no experience of a dry cider in the kind that you're making but yeah i think it's important to underline that difference that there's it's like the difference between boxed you know, what is called burgundy, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like a mm -hmm. boxed, like a box of Chablis um, that you can get at Ralph's and a bottle of Chablis from France. That's the difference between one of these ciders that you would order at a bar. It comes in a little, you know, 12 ounce bottle versus what you guys are doing, for example. Right. And that's but, important to underline um, for anybody that It is, but, but I, and it. I always go, but, so when, when that's true, right, that's absolutely true. But at the same time, I wonder how many, I listen to, I do actually listen to a lot of wine podcasts. Um, I enjoy it. It's because I'm learning so much, so many things at all times. Like I just love to learn. I read wine yeah, books online too. because yeah. I've read so many books and listened to so much on cider that I'm just like, okay, maybe I'll give myself a little break. <laughs> um, I mean, I continually try to, you know, um, improve my education, but still, you know, it's good to, to learn about other things. And, you know, not in one of those, do I ever have, has anyone ever been asked, um, yeah. Do you always have to, uh, make sure that the consumer knows that you're not a jug wine 
or that, right. you know, no, I mean, true, I true, guess, yeah. I guess unless you're talking to someone about Riesling, that's the only thing people are all oh, Rieslings are sweet. And I'm like, no, there's actually dry. Weight. Anyway, like I could, that's my only like analogy that I can think of off the top of my head. But on the whole, it's like when we talk about wine, we've already, I mean, maybe, I mean, unless you're talking about, you know, the Judgment of Paris or Mondavi and Napa and, you know, the, the, you know, bringing in the whatever, the different clones and really working on terroir here versus, you know, mass produced jug wine. I mean, I, I think that historically that was part of wine's conversation and, And even now, I suppose, you know, there is that talk, like you could talk about some of these like two buck chucks and all of the stuff that's that's low. I mean, but does that come up? That's what I was just about to say, though. I mean, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, that's a good point. But I I, I don't know how often, how often when you're talking to a winemaker, do you have to bring up that part of the conversation? Like, oh, how are you different from two buck chuck? And it's just like, so that's what I'm saying as I said earlier, when people ask me those questions, I just right. sort of like ignore them. I'm like, you don't have to answer. You don't talk to a, a beer maker all the time and ask them, you know, if you're talking to some True. excellent craft brewer, um, Highland Park, right down in your area, or one of those folks, you know, yeah. when, when someone talks to them, they don't always have to talk about Budweiser. So why do I have True. to talk about all this other schluck? If it exists, big whoop, people like it, good yeah. for them. I don't drink yeah. it fine. I'm not going after their demographic. I'm not going after their taps. It bothers me. Sure. But a lot of stuff bothers me. That's not the only thing. So that's why I'm just like, why don't, why do I always have to try to convince people to like it? Like I'm, you know, like, why do I have to convince to change people's minds? There are people who are already there. They're evolving. They've come on board. And like I said, it doesn't get respect unless a, a lot of times, unless a uh, you know, unless a winemaker starts working in cider or bringing in apples with their co-ferments. That bothers me just from a from my ego. Do you know what I mean? That bothers me, like in that sort of super um, that like self conscious way. That like, well, that's insulting to me. But for the good of cider, that's great. If they're bringing more people on board to look at cider in a different way, to regard it uh, as something that's lovely and beautiful, and we could talk about other issues rather than always having to compare and contrast to some like historical, you know, antiquarian version of this product or to some, you know, mass market market drag, then I'm all, I'm all for it. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, and anything, yeah. I drew a I drew a, a stark distinction, but I'll 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 use wine now so that I kind of I think there is a there is there's something to be said for the fact that I have good friends and they know I make wine, and yet I think I would need to sort of spell for them spell out for them the difference between what they can buy at Ralph's that's a bottle of wine that looks like wine and drinks like wine and in every other way, you know, has all the trappings of wine, but I would say is in a completely different category than, you know, the people that I would bring on to talk about wine on, on this podcast, for Mm -hmm. example, like it's, you know, where there is deep thought and intention and hands on care, low intervention, you know, stuff that's made, Mm -hmm. you know, from that place of 
agriculture, not from a place of recipes and mass production and everything that is, you know, the Central Valley and, you know, in in mass, whatever. Um, so, I, and I think that's a little more subtle because it does look alike. It's labeled similarly. You know, there's, there is a distinction there. And I, I still think even in cider now, there's, you're getting that distinction where you, there's a lot of, you can, I mean, especially in the canned cider world, you know, maybe not the 750 milliliter bottle cider world, but in the canned cider world, you can have some really sublime, I think, thoughtful, beautiful things where there's amazing farming behind it. And then you can have the complete other end. It's like an indie producer, but, you know, they're just buying, you know, dessert apples that are not good enough for, you know, the farmer's market and making sort of a just a whatever a pedestrian mm-hmm. cider out of it mm-hmm. i don't know but again I mean, we don't have to talk about this i no, guess I've, I've, yeah. let's talk about whatever you want i mean whatever comes up <laughs> well you have much me. more interesting thoughts you have many more interesting thoughts <laughs> well, no, but let's do this here i have an idea yes okay you t- let's give a context who are you and <laughs> and what and tell us about tilted shed where oh do you God. where is tilted shed located oh. Right, right. We first, we jump into the middle of conversations, which I think is actually super fun and the best way to do it because it's a more of a natural conversation. And yes, I honestly am tired of talking about myself, or I don't find myself very interesting, but I have a lot of thoughts, and I love to talk about this stuff. So no, I think it's like well, let, I, these I are can... questions I've always like. I I I ask myself all the time, like, why do I have to answer this question? Do the people in wine, you know? And so that's why I like to ask you this question too. I think it's a really good conversation and dialogue is what are the parallels there, you know? Um, And then how can we learn from each other and how we talk to people and get them on board with different experiences? So I think it's actually helpful that we're having this conversation for me because I definitely am coming at it from feeling like an underdog who's, you know, just had to like work so hard to like have anybody pay attention to us um, because I'm fighting not only against crap cider, right? Like right. The, the, you know, a, what do they say? A rising tide uh, lifts all boats, all boats. Floats all, yeah. but it doesn't always, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. you send garbage out there. It's, it undermines the work we're doing. Right. Yeah in our category. And, and then, you know, I see like the, the wine people and I know it's a hard business, but like a lot of this hard work has already been done a largely for you by previous generations. And we're still, we're, we're still at a, a place where we're just trying to like get past the real, you know, remedial questions about it. And I'm already ready to go three steps ahead past everybody else. And I, and I acknowledge that. Um, so I have, I enjoy this, it's not pushback, but I enjoy you coming back with me and showing that like, even, you know, I, I may, um, I, I may have a, a, the incorrect perception about what it's really like in wine as well. Right. Like yeah. maybe we're yeah. all dealing with the same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of a helpful to establish. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <Thank I do>. <laughs> <laughs> no it is i agree it's good but i but um but no for, for real it's i i uh well i appreciate that as well i appreciate the any discussion that we have we could probably talk for uh on many, many topics 
Let's let me hear. And you're sick of talking about yourself, so I'm just going to do a little. Okay, I mean, your name I is Ellen Cavalli. Yes, I'm... your name is Ellen Cavalli. <laughs> yes, you are one of two people. Uh, the other is your spouse, I believe. Yep. So my <laughs> husband Scott Heath. So I can uh-huh. real quickly. So um, we started Tilted, Tilted Shed Spiderworks. We're in Sonoma yeah. County. Uh, we started in 2011. Um, you have brief. a you have a little uh, a nice little little uh, farm there that you live. We in have a little on. farm. Yeah, we we live in Sebastopol, just outside Sebastopol. We have about five and a half acres. We have about a hundred different varieties of apples and peri pears planted. Uh, I have a seedling nursery that I've started. We have chickens. We have sheep. We have a dog. We have cats. Um, we have a little garden. Um, and you know. It's lovely and beautiful. How, here's a random question. I <laughs> yes. love that. Here, and you make cider and at least one or two co-ferments. So we make with grapes. Y- yes, we make so many things. So, okay. um, <laughs> oh my god, we probably make twenty-five different bottlings, and we do mm-hmm. canned cider as well. So we do different yeah. formats. Um, And we're one of those people who make really good cider in a can. Just because it's a different package doesn't mean you have to lower your expectations or your quality. That has nothing to do with it. They're just different packages, different ways of accessing the same beautiful stuff. So um, much lower carbon footprint as well. Like a lot of benefits to cans. Yeah. Right. Um, But you can't do like. I mean, maybe you can, but pet nat, we love to do pet nat method ancestral. We love to do method traditional, um, you know, bottle conditioning, those sorts of things to our ciders as well. And those really work in, and we do disgorging yeah. and all of that. So you need to have bottles, you know, um, yeah. and they also have long, more longevity in terms of the quality assurance. So a canned cider really six to nine months, um, you know, but a bottle of cider, a couple of years. So, um, yeah. so there's other benefits, but blah, blah. Okay. Um, okay. but no, yeah, so, so yeah, we could talk about that too. Uh, I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things, Adam. I, I, I have I, a I quick overthink. random yes. question for you. Yeah. How hard is it to, uh, raise and care for sheep? Um, it's not that hard. I mean, <laughs> They're fine. You know, they're not goats is what I will say. So they're not goats. They don't get into everything. You can train them to be fenced in. Um, We have baby doll sheep. So they're really tiny. Um, They're plump. They're like walking barrels. They're like, hello. Uh, And we've had them. They're almost 10 years old. And yeah, they're they're pretty easy. You know, Um, we have pasture that we that we have, say, you know, demarcated for them on our farm so that we're really into, you know, biodiversity is really important to us. Having wild spaces, having riparian habitats, leaving things alone, letting things recede, naturalizing, that sort of thing is super important to us as well. So, you know, it's not a manicured um, orchard at all. And calling it... No, you just plowed, bulldozed the whole six acres and no, it trees. was a complete wasteland <laughs> here. It had been pasture before with just a few trees and some big, beautiful oaks and other um, uh, wild plum trees and all sorts of things. So it's it's actually a really lovely little spot. Um, and are the and, trees big enough that you're you're putting the sheep out there that you can do some silver pasture? Yeah, we do. We do. All right. Yeah. Are they? Is it is it integrated enough that they're taking care of all your sort of 
eating of the the understory or they cannot you... possibly eat that much so you know what well, you you live in california so you know our climate right so we right. have so half of the year they're not half even of the get year anything. it's desiccated i mean right. even though we don't till and we try to cover crop and we try to mulch and do all the great things for soil tilth we have these really dry like really loamy sandy loamy gold ridge soils out here Um, which are great for drainage, but like their organic matter doesn't exist. So you have to add a lot of organic Mm. matter and, you know, trying to get out the the invasive grasses and build up good cover crops and all that stuff. It's a lot of work. And we're definitely, we're so stretched thin. I have another job. I have a full-time job as well. Uh, And Scott, you know, does all the cider making with our, with our, our good friend, David, uh, as our assistant, but like he's, bottling everything by hand and all of that so we're really stretched thin and we can't be good farmers i call us like we're members of the ffa the failed farmers of america we're not really good (laughs) so i don't call us orchardists and i don't even really call us farmers because we suck at it we could tell you what not to do uh but going but it fits your lifestyle yeah it's i'm a we're a little bit chaotic you know, we're you're not little... you're do, you're not doing any harm. It sounds like you're actually doing some good by the landscape, we're doing and you're good doing what fits, you know, for two people to do, who have busy lives. And you know, yeah, I I mean, this is I I aspire to that. I think that's I think that's good to hear. Honestly, like I, you don't have to be this committed farmer to sort of farm, right? Like, I mean, does do you do you feel that? Do you feel a pressure? Are you, are you guilt ridden that you're not doing better? Or do you do you like that you've that it fits in your life? Well, and that you've... yeah. I mean, do I? Yes, There's I wish a, we had well, done it better. No, I mean, what you're saying is resonating. That's why I'm sighing because, yeah, I wish <laughs> we had done better. I mean, we, you know, let me step back. Like again, I'm I'm not even talking about our background, and that's fine. But you should know, like, I come from a publishing background, so I was an editor <laughs> for 25 years, and I'm really good at proofreading and writing and editing. Um, and and you, know, we certainly are not. Um, uh, unlearned when it comes to agriculture. Like we've been doing little, we started out with gardening and then we sort of moved into very, very, very small scale farming after that. And we read all the books and taken all the workshops and done, and I've worked on a farm for a couple of harvest seasons. So, um, uh, so we've done the, the work, but you know, my background doesn't come from this and Scott's a master printer of Intaglio. So he actually comes from the art world you know, um, so Italio's etchings, so fine art etchings. So he can addition right. these beautiful prints and he's worked with amazing artists. Um, but this was sort of something that we, because we were, you know, so disconnected from the earth, really. Like, I could make you a book and Scott could addition you a beautiful print, but like, could we make our <laughs> own food? I don't know. You know, we were living in New York when right. we got together and, you know, we just kind of missed having that connection. And so we started learning how to grow our own food and learning how to ferment our food. And we even grew wheat and learned how to, we threshed it by hand and then milled it by hand and made our own made sourdough bread? with it. Yeah. Like, hey, we, we, you know, we I got, we got there. We were those people, right. We had, right. We're giving away scobies all the time. We had kombucha all over the house. You know, we had beer bubbling in one area and melomel in another. And so that all comes from just sort of like really wanting to reconnect 
to these lost skills, you know, to learning how to grow food, drink, you know, learning how to prepare it. And it really relates to having a better connection to the earth and caring about the earth more. Right. Yeah. So uh, my point about all this ramble is that, yes, even though we've, no, (laughs) we just, it's, we, when you start doing this work, you realize like how much discipline you have to have to do it well, how much knowledge is here and you can't, be everything and do everything and you have to be for you have to forgive Same. yourself you do yeah. like because you know I, I, certain people are really I mean I always have so many projects and I'm so driven and I really want to do well by everything you know I want to do right and well by everything that I set out to do and so there is a perfectionist tendency and um you know you have to I, I have learned, it's been a real learning process, but I have learned to accept that things aren't going to go well, or you make mistakes and learn from them, or you don't always have to be good at something. And it's okay to say that. Um, And farming, having farming in air quotes, here, growing our apples has been a very humbling experience, but also really liberating. So Trees will die, you know, the gophers will kill them. There's blight. We should have thinned that tree and now it's stunted for life. This one got a weird disease. We pruned that one wrong. Uh, you know what I mean? We didn't water it yeah. enough because we were trying to conserve water. You know, all those things that make you feel really honestly, can I say shitty? Shitty. Yeah. Um, say anything. <laughs> <laughs> things that make you feel <laughs> shitty about yourself that you failed. I'm just like, no. In what world was I supposed to know all of this? You know what I mean? I think the worst thing is to come at it without that humility and say, I know everything. It's like going into cider. If I started, you know, when I started cider, I felt like, oh, I know everything about apples. I do not know everything about apples. The longer I do this, I know the difference between Arkansas Black and Kingston Black. And I do know a lot about apples and a lot about cider. But I'm, I'm just like, the longer you go, the more you realize you don't know a lot. And so yeah. that's what, that's what it is humbling. But like yeah. I said, it is liberating because why do I have those high expectations? So no, our farm is kind of a mess. Things are decrepit. We've lost a lot of trees. We've made a lot of mistakes. And every once in a while, I have to twist that around, right? It's changing the narrative, right? We talked about yeah. that earlier. It's like, what are the good things that came out of it? Well, I've learned a lot about, you know, our soil yeah. type. I've learned a lot about what apples will grow well here. Um, you know, I have much more attuned to the seasons now, much more attuned to rainfall, much more attuned to all these different things. Um, and maybe it's made me a better person in terms of wanting to be a steward of the environment because of just like how variable and scary it can be. And also real deep and abiding respect for the people who are farming well here. So we get our apples here represent a very small fraction of our production. We do a cider called it's our farm reserve cider. It's our estate blend and we do a barrel or two a year. That's it. Um, cause that's, we don't, we don't have a lot of yield in our orchard yet. Um, right. so everything else we get from a few, few organic orchardists here in Sonoma County, 
Um, and then we have a place called the Lost Orchard. I know it's so mythical, um, but it really is. This is an abandoned cider orchard near the Russian River that we glean fruit from and, and a couple of other places. And, you know, it just makes me really respect, you know, Chad Frick, who's one of our main orchardists, or Laura Cheever, um, or Mike Meyer. Like, we are a first-name basis with all these people. They're our friends. We support them. We pay them the most we can. Jake Mann. Um, another great orchardist friend of ours. And, you know, it makes me have so much more respect for what they're doing because I know how hard this is now. And I really feel, and maybe it's the same with wine, but I feel like I have much more respect and I care even more deeply about the fruit, about these apples, about these varieties, because I now have firsthand knowledge of how hard it is to grow them, to grow them well, to grow them sustainably, to grow and make it healthy. Um, that people who can do that year after year in large volumes, I'm just, I'm so impressed by them. So it's, it's really given me a lot, you know, I, I'm, I'm more grateful for our growers than I was 10 years ago. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And let's talk about some of those uh, orchards. That, I, it sounds like, you're using a lot of dry farmed uh, orchards. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, so dry. So these are pretty well established. I'm sure like with, I think the thing I, I, I want to put this out, I'm going to do a podcast on dry farming, uh-huh. but I, I think people, people hear, you know, that, Oh, you're making like, you're using all dry farm farmed vineyards or orchards or whatever. And it's like, Oh, that's so wonderful. And it is such a great story and it is wonderful for the environment that we can do that even here in, you know, drought ridden California. Uh, the reality is every one of these things is usually older, uh, was established at a time when they watered it regularly with some sort of irrigation, whether it was flood irrigation or literally by hand irrigation. And then once they were established or at some point maybe neglected, they just sort of figured it out without, you know, having that regular water and just using the seasonal water. But these were until they're established, you know, dry farming is in California, at least, um, something that begins with irrigation. I think, I think well, there's very few places that maybe in North, maybe I'm wrong. I, well, I, I, I could be wrong. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know everything about the viticulture side, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but for the, you know, the apple growing side or orchards, um, I guess, first of all, does everybody know what dry farming is? So I guess two things. Does everybody know what dry farming is? So let's put a pin on that because we might need to actually like define that. And then two, I'll just, but right now I'll I'll answer your question specifically about like (laughs) cultivating something for dry farming uh, because I don't want to get off track. I'm really working hard on concision and staying focused, Adam. It's tough for me. (laughs) You're doing a great job. Anyway. um, so Making my job easy. I don't know. Good luck with editing. Um, So yes, we source almost exclusively from old orchards. All of them are Mm -hmm. organic, certified organic. Mm and that's a requirement for us. It's very important to us that we the only certification or the um, farming. The farming practices are, and then yeah. all of our orchardists do go through with certification. Now, here at home, we also follow organic practices, but like I don't have to prove anything to myself, and I am only making a couple barrels a year, and it's you know, um, yeah. but but it 
you know, following organic practice is very important to me. If someone didn't have the certification, that's fine. But a lot of times that certification sure helps those growers because they really can command a much higher price point on the open market. We can't buy everybody's fruit, but if they are certified organic, they have better opportunities, you know, maybe um, selling to other processors, selling direct, you know, to, to, um, restaurants or selling to or markets and things like that. So certification, um, you could talk to an orchardist on why and why not they would go with this, but it does help them in the long run because they can command a higher price uh, with certification here in Sonoma County than without it. So it does behoove yeah. a grower to do that work. Um, yeah. And for us though, we already pay top prices. Um, you know, we really, if we want to see orchards, in a tact here, we know we have to pay a price and we know that they're competing against high-end wine, which can command two, three, four times as much per ton as they can get with apples. And so we want to do our best to keep them, you know, in agriculture intact. And the way to do that is to pay the most money we can. So that's a, a side yeah. part, but going back to the orchards. So yes. So um, most of the orchards out here and the ones that we source from are at least 50 years old. Um, and they were planted to seedling rootstock. So rootstock, I mean, let's get a little nerdy, right? So rootstock is super important when you're deciding to grow grapes or you're deciding to grow uh, apples as well. Um, and I know with grapes, you're looking for phylloxo-resistant. So you would probably ch you know, choose American, whatever, rootstocks or different types of rootstocks for that or for different um um, different capabilities and characteristics. And for apples, it's the same thing. So they would be planting to what were called standard size rootstock or even seedling rootstock. And essentially that means that those, those roots, those rootstocks can dig in much deeper through the soil, have a greater um, drip line, um, you know, longer tap roots, um, meaning they can withstand the pressures of drought much better. So when they're planted, right. you know, uh, back in the day, they'd probably be driving around on their tractor with, you know, buckets of water and dropping it, you know, pouring it by hand onto these, um, these, these new orchards as they're being established. But it wouldn't take a whole lot for them to then be established. And then once they are, then they generally can weather anything. Um, and that's, that's been the case. So, you know, we have orchards that are 50, hundred years old here and are still producing and they get no supplemental water, even in times of droughts as we've had here, even with these like sandy, loamy gold ridge soils, you know, yeah. somehow those trees are able to hang in there. And so, as I say, they're still standing. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, so, mm -hmm. and, and, but like our orchard here, when we started it, we put it to semi-dwarf, um, rootstock. The reason for that is because we wanted to do denser, denser planting. So closer together because they're smaller trees and right. they fruit earlier, four to seven years rather than seven to 10 years. And we're like, dude, we need these apples. Uh, right. but they're not really, so we do drip irrigation and I, Got to tell you, through these last couple of droughts, I've been feel like a couple of years feel like we're always in drought, right? Unless it's flooded, like in 2019, um, <laughs> that I'm just like, ugh, should I be watering an 
crop that's only going to be like it's only uses for alcohol. Like there is a kind of an ethical question there. Uh, And it's something I wrestle with. And and that's why our orchard isn't so great, guys. I mean, because like we don't water it enough because I don't, you know, so if we were to do it again, ideally, if we could have afforded it, we would have bought an established old orchard, right? A standard orchard. We would have top worked, which means grafted onto those existing trees, the different varieties that we want to work with. And then not do any supplemental irrigation. And, um, you know, this is a real cause for concern right now with, you know, with the increasing volatility in our weather, with the greater extremes of our droughts. You know, I grew up, I'm, I'm a California native, right? I grew up in the East Bay. I went through the droughts in the 70s. I remember being a little kid, but, you know, my mom going, okay, you can only have this little bucket of water. You know, I remember that. <laughs> I, I grew up in drought. I understand what it's like to live yeah. this way, but nothing has prepared me for what I've seen this past year with reservoirs drying, with wells drying, with the river running so low, you can like tiptoe across it, you know, with, with people having the colder herds because there's not enough water for them. There's no hay, bad news. And you're still going, I mean, at least we got rain recently, but I know down South, you're not really just not getting it. And so you have to really think like, what is the price of survivability? You know, yeah. the water wars are coming next. That's what it's all yeah. coming down to, you know, yeah. and desalination isn't necessarily going to be the answer. And, you know, reservoirs aren't going to be the answer if you don't have any runoff. So right. we really, as in all of agriculture, need to really think about it. I think what should water be used for? Drinking? You know, bathing yeah. once in a while is a good idea. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you just know. like basic hygiene, right? Um, you know, survivability of food it, it, is it, it, super it. important. I believe <laughs> that water should be used for food. I believe the food should be grown close by to you rather than trucked in from out of state yeah. or out of country. So I belong to a CSA and that's where I get my vegetables. You know, I, I believe yeah. that if, even if we're in a, a, you know, a water scarce situation, if I've got that water, it should be going to food and that food should be feeding people and that food should be accessible. And that's what I do in my day job. I work for an organization called Farm Trails. So that's what the water should be used for. Um, But should it be used for alcohol? You know, like there's a, that's a tough one. Like I see all these. I love that you're asking that question. I see all these vineyards out here, you know, and there are people's yes. wells that have gone dry. They can't, they don't have water. There's curtailments, but we're still watering vineyards. And then I water yeah. my orchard and I'm like, why am I doing this? And part of it's like, yeah. well, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, well, you know, if it's properly maintained, the vineyards and their irrigation system on drip da, 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 is actually using only this amount of water and people are you know being very mindful about it because they want the the you know they they everybody we're all in we're all in the same sinking boat it's not even sinking it can't sink when there's no water we're all in the <laughs> same desert right now you know what i mean and so yeah. i'm not saying that the viticulturalists that the people who run vineyards aren't um uh, are don't care about the water scarcity issue 
But so no, much money not. has yeah. gone into setting those up. So much right. money comes from it. It is our main driver of our economy here is the wine industry. And so what do you do when you shut the water off to those vines and they die? Um, yeah. Sorry, there's a, there's a chicken in my house. Sorry. You might hear oh, the background. Um, yep. <laughs> so what do you? So what do you? What do you do? And that's been a real source of contention right now. And I don't know if it's like that down in LA. Maybe because your wine industry isn't quite as massive, right there. No, yeah, definitely not. Um, doesn't yeah. dictate a lot of your um, politics, planning yeah. and politics and economy <laughs> and all of that stuff. But this is a real tough question that we're all grappling with right now. And California is what the number one producer of wine and we are being hit so hard and we are not going to get out of this drought. The whatever 20 inches we just got this past few months, few weeks, I mean, that's not, that that's not solving this problem at all. That's just making it so that there's a little bit of moisture in the soil. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if we get out of this. I mean, this is this is what we're living with now is we're going to have 18 inches a year and then we're going to have 60. It's going to flood and then it's then it's going to be fire. And that's what we're living with. And so we have to say, OK, what is the appropriate use for our water and how can we now with that whatever choice we make now? How do we make it so that we are not contributing to the problem? Either we're not adding to it or we're, you know, actively trying to make Sonoma County in this case survive. And, you know, that gets so. So anyway, I'm going off on my tangent, but that does speak to, you know, using these old orchards. And I threw a freaking fit man, on Instagram a couple of three months ago. I don't know when it was a few months ago where there's this one winemaker who used to be, I don't know, like a hedge fund manager. And he's like, I'm going to change career. If you're, maybe you're a hedge fund manager in your day job. <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay. But like, I'm going to, I would, I'm going to become yeah. like this premium Pinot producer, winemaker. Sorry. I have to do my voice like that. Cause it just was such a, like a douchey thing. And he bought this, you know, he, all of his wines are like, a bottle and he's full of shit and all this, you know, the way he talks about stuff and calls himself basically the carbon Messiah. Like he bought, you know, that he's doing all these things and he's going to save the world through wine. And he um, bought a property, a little uh, orchard, um, not too, maybe 10 minutes from our house here. Uh A beautiful old orchard, organic. And then proceeded to bulldoze the shit out of those trees and then was talking about how he was doing it for the good of the earth and that what was coming next would be good in terms of carbon uh, mitigation and regenerative agriculture. And I just lost it because how do you justify bulldozing an orchard that's been there 50, 60, 70, 80 years that is actively capturing carbon? that requires no supplemental irrigation that hasn't had any chemical sort of negative, you know, needs that produces food for people and drink. Right. So here's the thing. The good thing about all these orchards out here is they can feed a kid. They're not going to drink alcohol, right? They're not going to drink cider, but they can, you can feed a kid who's hungry with these apples. 
right? You can feed families with it. You can process it and have your applesauce. You can dry it. It's multi-purpose. These trees are feeding people. They're not just there for alcohol, you know? And we can say that alcohol, while it seems pretty important to my life, that's that's a luxury, okay? That's a leisure item. That's something that we don't absolutely need to have. But people need to eat, and these orchards are producing it. And they're not they're giving all the time, and they're not taking anything from us. They're only giving. They're right. not taking water. They're not, you know, they're not putting in this poisons. They're taking in, you know, the they're CO2 giving and giving oxygen. Yeah. They're giving yeah. food. They're giving stability to the landscape. They and are. The soil. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what's teeming under that soil? What was the life like in that soil that hadn't been like, you know, disrupted for decades? Ripped yeah. for decades. Exactly. So how do you how do you justify tearing that all down, bulldozing it? And he was like, Oh, look at my toy, you know, this big ass bulldozer just to rip everything out that's fossil yeah. fuel intensive. How do you justify that and call yourself, you know, do it green? How do you do this? We call them the carbon (laughs) messiah. And how do you, but how do you justify that? You know, and then what you put in vines that are going to require how much water right now in the middle of the establish them to establish them. Yeah. And on all the while, all the while talking about how he was, how this was good for the earth. And he is a steward of the earth. And no, that's that's not it. So we, you know, so you can greenwash, try to greenwash all you want. But the facts yeah. are the facts. That that is a well, destructive, let's... you know, it's a destructive agricultural practice. And we need to stop that, you know, yeah, and we well... need to keep the things that are intact, intact. And if you want to plant new vines, that's fine. But you do that so they don't need so much water that they can weather climate you know, all the climate emergencies we go through and that you're responsible about that and you leave wildlife and you leave, you know, you work towards soil health. There's people doing really good work. I don't want to just like harp on this guy, but he represents the worst of it. And that's the ones that are getting rewarded with these 80, $90 bottles of cider. And he was in wine enthusiast magazine and all this stuff. They're the ones who are being lauded, but they're not the ones actually doing good work. You know, yeah. there are people doing good work. I'll hook you up with some of those people. You should interview them. But um, <laughs> that's how I feel about about. I have, I have. And I think I am interviewing <laughs> one right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's great. No, I, I yeah. I mean, if, down here, I, I think a really good example of that is like the wonderful company who bought Justin and Paso Robles and does you know, Fiji water and palm, you know, the palm thing, whatever. They basically, I, I don't know. It's a, it just, it's a terrible company. and It's like a corporate run thing. That oh, I do know of, who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it does. When I say terrible, I mean, look, I what do I know about them? But I, I know some of the practices. They basically bulldozed, you know, virgin oak forest in Paso Robles. They, oh, they were the cause, co- like, and they sort of did it sneakily because they bought all this acreage and then they, you know, it was like somebody didn't, it, it wasn't even discovered until somebody flew over with their plane oh, and saw like all this cleared God. land. And basically they are the cause of Paso Robles now having ordinances that prevent people from, you know, clearing more than I forget whatever percentage of your land of, of the natural 
trees that right. are there when you buy but, a new property. Well, what's the problem it here? So they build. So even even if they violated the law, which I'm sure they knew they were going to, that they did. I don't think there was a law at that well, time. Well, I see problem. some. They there's just, some. They violated the natural law. So, so there are some <laughs> companies that have done the same thing out here. Yeah. And they build that into the cost of doing business. They're well capitalized. Yeah. And yep. they get a what? They get a fine for twenty five thousand dollars. Do you think they care? No, they don't yeah. care. So they bulldoze a riparian zone and pay the fine after you know going through the courts and making the county you know fight them on it. So you know a lot of that stuff. I mean, that's that's you know we have a um, it's a huge problem even out here. It has been. There's a lot of ordinances that have gone into place to try to prevent that, and that's great. Um, but a lot of these companies, if they, because they're so well-funded, um, they build that into the cost of doing business. They don't care about the fines. What's not going to happen is that they're, you know, it's not like their business license is going to be revoked. It's not like they're going to be like, nope, you have to shut down. You don't get to do business. They still get to do business. You know, Nestle over, you know, still gets to take water out of the ground and resell it. I mean, like. All these companies get to be really extractive and still allowed to to continue doing their work. They don't get shut down. So, you know, if you really want to teach a lesson to people, you don't let them do it. And then if they do it, then you (laughs) shut them down. You don't give them a $10,000 fine or say you're bad. Give them a little sticker on their window saying naughty. You know, you shut them down, but that's not how we do things, right? Because the yeah. money talks. If they if they can afford that fine, they can afford a lot. So, yeah. you know, follow follow that money. Um, but it's a real shame because you can't grow. I mean, you can't get those oak forests back. You know, in quite the same way. You know, it's yeah, the damage I mean, has been no done way. to the land, and uh, and yet they probably have a really good marketing department that's going to represent their product as, yeah. as natural I mean, their and company healthy. Is called, their company is called Wonderful. Yeah. It must be true. Well, um. you know, no one would lie. <laughs> uh, my company's called Tilted Shed and our shed really is tilted. So truth in advertising. Uh, I know. Um, all right. Let's quickly, quickly. Uh, first of all, one of the pins that I want to put in is the question that you're asking yourself when you water that orchard there. I think that's, I I think it's such an important question to ask. I don't think enough people in our industry in California are asking that. We're all talking about how to remove freaking smoke taint from our wine. And I think we should be talking about removing fruit that needs to be irrigated from the landscape. Not, you know what I mean? Like, this is a big, big, big thing. Like, like maybe it's not, the you know let's like refocus where we're putting our attention like if we're yeah like you said we're turning we're literally turning off the tap to certain agricultural sectors that get you know their water from the river up north yeah and if we're doing that and we're watering you know these things that really don't do well without being watered in this climate then maybe we need to look at some things that 
we can eat and drink that do well in this climate because there are those i mean i don't think you know like we're we're making some wine from prickly pear because mm-hmm. of for that very reason just to draw attention to that like yeah. hey Neat. maybe we need to start mm-hmm. thinking about like what has been going on for thousands of years in north central mexico and you know southern ta- texas with indigenous cultures who have lived in desert landscapes because that's where we're headed a desert landscape you know it's not mediterranean anymore it is and mm-hmm. and uh let's let's start wrapping our heads around a different way to do agriculture not not something that requires us to use up all the water exactly for things that really aren't adapted to a desert and you can do it i mean you can you can you can you know farm you can cultivate and farm grapes you know what are they was it um ah God, I wish I could tell. Is it the Canary Islands somewhere where they have, they're so dry that there's the, they make those little um, wells sort of around the vines. I mean, there's so many different types of methods that you yeah, can, yeah. that you can use, that you can look at like what different areas yeah, have done. Or well, even also... here, there's, there's lots of, um, you know, old vine Zinfandel and things like that, that are, yeah, that are, that are, they're dry farmed, you know, and I understand yeah. maybe once in a while they need a little bit of water. You know, right. maybe, okay, we're in a real crisis. They need a little bit of water. That's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's fine a little bit. But like when it's, um, it's an ivy drip, it can't survive without it, then we got problems. And, you know, I well, was driving. Uh, yeah. Maybe, the, sorry, that, I, I, just to put a caveat on what I had said about different fruits. I mean, maybe we use the same fruits, but we don't have the same yield expectations anymore. You know, like maybe it's not a three tons per acre scenario anymore. Maybe it's a half ton per acre yeah, scenario, well, you know? I mean, but, but again, California, this is number right. one I mean, wine region in the U S and this is a main driver of our economy. And so I'm, you know, this all, I think we, it's not just like, should vineyards or in our case you know um there's uh, you know uh non-standard orchards be irrigated because they're used for alcohol it's not just that question right but it's like but it's also what are we building our economies on what are we building our communities on and a lot of times again it's it's become this extractive thing where we're we're trying to get all this stuff from the earth so that we can package it and sell it to other people way far away Right. Line our pockets with and gold, then right? make as much money as possible and have the biggest margins as possible and then just keep that going. You know, ultimately what do we really what should we really be yeah. going for is something that you know has a closed loop. So like I'm not taking more water than I'm putting back in through, you know, various regenerative agricultural means or rainwater catchment or groundwater injection, you know, those sorts of things. Um, I'm trying to keep it as close to here as possible. I'm paying my my farmers as much as possible. I'm paying my workers as much as possible. And the people who buy my products are paying as much as possible so that we can all stay within this like sustainable and sustainable is a stupid word, but I mean that in the like yeah. actual little sense, like it's something that we can continue doing without right. one of us in that circle suffering so much yeah so i don't know well, i mean up here it's also cost uh so why yes, why are you course, trying yeah. to get so much why are you trying to get so much acreage or so much tonnage per acre uh is because it's freaking expensive up here you know it's yeah. outrageous how much it costs to live here how much land costs how much all of it costs 
And well, so, you just did a recent blog post about that. That was your most recent blog post about equity and the cost of real estate in Sonoma County. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think you have some really important thoughts about it, or at least you've, you've brought yeah. up some really... I think it's just important to underline that and, and to think about that as we're, as we're moving yes. in the right direction, well, I mean, hopefully. It, yeah, exactly. So, so, well, I brought that up in terms... So I have a friend who... Um, was a black uh, farmer um, and she and her wife had been trying for so long to buy just a couple of acres here so that they could have their own farm. And she, she just, they couldn't afford it. It's so expensive here. It's so expensive. People were, especially during the pandemic was really when it had reached its peak Oh yeah, because what was happening is people were coming from the Bay area they were buying second homes, third homes, their weekend homes. It's, you know, they, they no longer had to go into the office to their whatever Google or Tesla or whatever, you know, Twitter office space or wherever Salesforce, wherever they were making a lot of money, they no longer had to go into the office. So they're like, well, we can work from anywhere. So let's go buy a cute little property up in Sonoma County. So they could pay all cash. They can outbid everybody because they are well monetized. Um, they're making these like really high end Bay area salaries and coming up here. And this is not new. I mean, this has been happening for a long time, but it, it kind of just reached a Zenith during the pandemic. It was shocking. It was just like astronomical increases in property values, you know? And my friend's just like, I can't even like, I want to stay here. (laughs) You know, we want to live here. This is where we want to be, but we can't afford it. So she started looking around and it got me to learning a lot more about land tenure and racial equity or the lack thereof in agriculture in California. So sort of that, you know, that what she was going through just really crystallized a lot of the problems I see here. And one is a lot of and myself included, generational wealth, right? So the people who right, can afford right. I, anything here generally have some generational wealth. What do we mean by that? It means that your parents or your grandparents, you know, had property, estate, had money, they yeah. owned real estate, and they were able to take that and convert it to more real estate or to more money. And, you know, that's, I'm, I willingly admit, the only reason Scott and I were able to afford this place, which by the way, was completely run down and, you know, we got it for under $400,000, which is a good value, even right. though the house was unlivable and it was, we had to live in a trailer for a while. But my point being that the reason we were able to do that is because Scott's parents and his grandpa died. They had all had their own homes that they owned and those homes were, you know, when they passed, they were sold and, you know, he and his two siblings inherited some money. That's right. generational wealth. Now, right. that's and that's how a lot of people do it. Now, if you were a black person who was whose family, you know, you come from a family that was enslaved. You were, you know, so you had no generate. You didn't get to come over here and build wealth. You're you you're the wealth was extracted from you. It was stolen right. from you. Then you're, you know, you are so-called emancipated, but then you're kept, you know, basically in almost bondage through Jim Crow laws, through all these terrible um, 
sundowner laws through minimum wage. I mean, what is minimum wage doing? You know, the incarceration, what is all of that? Right? Mm -hmm. How do you build generational wealth when every single system in our society is meant to keep you down? And every single system is meant to help white people like me go up. So that's what started, you know, it was a, a real revelation to me because I always considered myself kind of like middle class. We didn't, I didn't have much money growing up. I don't, there was no real generational wealth on my side. Let me be clear about that. And I'm not saying Scott's family was like loaded and rich, but you know, they came from a place where they were able to buy their own home. And, and then you're able to start the succession of it. And so we benefited from that and not many people who, you know, don't have that don't. So, you know, and then that income inequality and the systemic prejudices and the imbalances of of the policies that are in play from the redlining, from the USDA, I mean, all these things, all these programs historically, and even to this day, have been built to continue creating, you know, this inequality. How do you reverse that? You know, and so what we have here is a is a in, is an economy in Sonoma County that's based upon wine, which is a luxury good, which is you know a large uh, amount of the workforce are immigrants and brown people, right? Who may be undocumented or not, and so maybe don't benefit all the time from the wealth that's associated with that product. We have val- the, the price of property for people who want to get out from under there and start their own thing astronomically high due to the tech, due to the hedge funds, finance, um, and those sorts of things. Yeah. You know, so how do you rectify that? You can't have a community that stays intact when only the rich people can have farms for other rich people. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you're, you, you can can't only rich people can afford to get the land, and then the the products that they're creating can only be afforded by rich people. Yeah. So how 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 do you continue living? How does your yeah. place continue going, like perpetuate if if you can only be serving this really, you know, top echelon of the economic sphere? You can't. And so you know, I brought it up in that that post, which isn't really like. You know, it's it's a, it's a really hard thing to talk about. I'm not a land user, you know, policy expert or anything like that. But, you know, there was a report by uh, USDA or no, I'm sorry, CDFA, California. Um, it's called the Farmer Equity Report released in 2000, no, in 2020, based upon information gathered up to 2017 um, and I believe there's like 124,000 people who identified as farmers in the in the state, and only 429 of them were black. Not 429,000, 429 people, black. Yeah, yeah. That's 0.3 percent of the farmers. And so, you know, maybe maybe we talk about reparations. You know what I mean? Like maybe we talk about rematriation for the indigenous peoples. Maybe we really make that part of our land use policy. Because then what you're going to do is you're going to be able to keep people from leaving. 
you know, so we don't have many black people here to begin with. And then if they don't have not, you know, as much generational wealth to be able to sustain this lifestyle as some of people who maybe who are, you know, white, let's be honest, that's how it works. Then they're going to leave. And then what am I going to be left here with for my son? You know, so, you know, I just that's it's a real hard thing to grapple with. It's something I as like this little tiny cider producer can't totally change. But it's something that, you know, I have talked about um, publicly as Tilted Shed. Um, We actually raised money for our friend. You know, we made a special cider. And we gave her 10% of all the profits from that to help fund her. She's not a nonprofit. She's just a person who I believe deserved to have a farm, you know, because I wanted to have her, I wanted to keep her here. And how can we do it? Um, She ended up moving to Georgia. She couldn't afford it here. So, um, so we lost, now we have 428 black people here. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, I, I guess this sort of goes into another topic and sometime you have to cut me off, Adam, but it's, (laughs) but it's like, what do you do when you have a platform? So I make cider. Mm. All I'm doing is making cider co-ferments. I'm making alcohol that makes people feel happy. It tastes good. It's interesting. It looks cool, but I'm not really like saving the world. But if you have this ability to talk about these issues that come up and that you are either part of the problem, part of the solution, right? Then I think yeah. I think we have a duty and an obligation to talk about these things. We don't have to talk about them in every Instagram post or every time we talk to people, but I think we should always bring it up. And I think that if we divorce ourselves from environmental justice, from social justice, racial justice, from very thorny issues that are uncomfortable. But if you act like those things aren't happening and I am just making ooh-la-la some like crispy cider, you know, then you're also being an extractive. You're not really being community-minded. These are my neighbors here. I want people to like, I want there to be, you know, lots of diversity here. I want there to be a place of equity and inclusion, real equity, inclusion and real representation. And I want people to stay here. And I want my son to grow up with people from all different cultures and religions and colors and backgrounds, you know, because that's going to make him a better person. And that's going to make this a better world. It really is. So, you know, and maybe we all care deeper about each other and maybe we all end up caring more about our world. So, you know, I, I feel like that's something I brought up. It was very, um, uh, you know, it was quite the thing to do back in the George Floyd protests um, to talk about it and then to drop it. And, you know, I, it's not like I bring it up at all times, but I really do believe to use the platform I have in fighting for and supporting people who may be, um, who may need it. You know, we did a fundraiser for Trans Lifeline, you know, to support trans people. They're under attack all the time. And so, you know, or to talk about land equity uses, um, to talk about, you know, our climate emergency. You know, I know I don't want to be a downer all the time, 
but your choices matter. Like who you support and what products you buy, even if you want to like chill out and forget the world's problems with a cider, you should at least feel good knowing that you supported a company that actually is working toward fixing those problems that are causing you to want to check out for a while. Yeah. You know, well, well said, very well said. Um, and with that, let's talk about your ciders. What do you got available that we can try? Oh God. And... What, what is this <laughs> okay, well, First of all, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good point. Well, uh, maybe in a week or two. Okay. Let's say, let's say, um, how do people find your ciders? First of all, well, What's, uh, what's your website? My website, TiltedShed.com. Yes. TiltedShed. TiltedShed.com. Okay. And we, there is a Tilted Shed. That, was, that, that wasn't a joke when I said there is. Yeah, there is. There's a Tilted yeah, Shed. That's I think I've seen it. it on your Instagram. Yeah, it's there. It's there. Um, <laughs> and my Instagram is where I'm mostly like, so I run that account and that's where I'm the most um, active. So follow me there. Okay. We can. What's that? At what? Just Tilted Shed. You know, it's Perfect. pretty easy. Um, our ciders. So we do ciders and co-ferments. Um, we're releasing, we release stuff three or four times a year. We do up to 25 different bottlings. Um, I'm waiting on the labels and they're arriving any day now for our winter release. And that's going to be some cool stuff. Um, like a single variety Arkansas black, uh, Arkansas black cider that's aged in our own brand, apple brandy barrel. We have our um, Method Traditional Jonathan. So it's a single variety um, champagne method, hand disgorged, hand riddled, hand disgorged. Um, we also have our estate mm-hmm. cider, our next, our 2019 vintage that we're releasing. So we have some really good stuff. We also have um, the co ferments. So those, that one's a Carignan Jonathan um Mm. co-ferment that's coming out which is lovely and then we do a lot of other stuff and we also have a pomo that we're releasing so we do distillation projects with our neighbors and we have a lot of stuff that we do um and everything is pretty small um i'm talking between 10 to 50 cases that's about it in kegs so we you know you're not going to go to ralph's you're not going to go to a supermarket and find our stuff and i don't like Earlier on, we were sort of of the mindset, like fewer, fewer, you know, products, fewer SKUs or whatever, and um, try to make more of it and try to really get out in distribution. And we've gone through a few distribution partnerships and nothing worked out for us because we're just not cut out for that kind of life, like that kind of um, demographic or anything like that. Nor am I like, you hear me talking now. Imagine me going to an account. Like I'm not very good at <laughs> schmoozing. I'm just, ter- I'm terrible at it. Um, you s- <laughs> so you don't want me let, out there let anyway. Me, let me ask you a quick uh, ignorant question. Okay. Is there a difference between, what's the difference between Pomo and Apple Brandy? Oh, I would love to answer that question. So Pomo is made with Apple Brandy. So okay. what you do is you take, um, and it originated, or it's most famous oh. in France, in Normandy. Uh, okay. it's, it's like, it's sort of, it's... Um, is it like port? Is it like mm, where you arrest the fermentation by adding... Kind of, yeah. Brandy? So you take, it's usually the formula is one-third brandy, or in France you would use Calvados. Um, okay. And then you blend in fresh pest juice, so about a two-thirds okay. of that. 
and then you age it in barrel and it's delicious Ooh. and it has like amazing oh it's like uh super rich it'll usually about 18 percent abv um right. so okay. yes so the alcohol arrests fermentation there's no fermentation right so right um it's a it's it so has sweet hops. a little it's bit sweet but it'll have like lovely yeah. like toffee notes to it or pe- roasted pecan mm-hmm. notes to it and things like that so it's extraordinary i love it yeah the ones i've had have been mm, yes. so good so yes. we make several types and we do one with roasted acorns um so we leach the acorns crack them, roast them, then infuse it in the brandy over it. And then um, take that infused brandy and then blend it in with juice. We do a Lost Orchard Pomo, which is using this abandoned cider orchard and using a lot of the bitter, uh, sweet and bitter sharp apples that goes into it. So it's very... Um, sweet but it has some substance oh it's then. very much it's this it's very complex mm. still even even so oh. even it being sweet um we do um and do the acorns do you i mean do you gather them where, where do you yeah get we do yeah we do nice yeah so we just get them you know locally usually you use live the oak. black oak we get there's live oak the there's black oak, oak yeah. there's pin oak yeah um i think this last time we used black oak um so we do that we also do a pink peppercorn um, Pomo. Oh. So we don't do a whole lot of, I don't, I mean, I usually don't like to add botanicals to our ciders um, because, you know, like one of my favorite ciders is Wixen. And it, you know, if you just, it's, it's, it's delicious out of hand. It's a delicious little crab apple, a lot of lemon meringue notes. And when it ferments out, mm. it retains that, but it has some nice, really sort of like wild herbal qualities too. And mm. I'm just like, if I added you know, rosemary to it, or I don't know, some, some botanical to it. The fact is it's unnecessary because a lot of these apples, when they ferment, they already have a lot of those notes to it. So I hate to mess with it. But when we do our Pomo projects, I think it's actually really lovely to do some botanicals with it because you're using it in the base of the brandy, right? And so that brandy, that, that distillate, that alcohol, that spirit kind of, it's like a, like, you know, a lot of really interesting Amari and things like that. Like, oh, those botanicals really make it sing. So I like to use the, we like to use the botanicals in our Pomo. Um, so right. we do that. And, you know, um, I have a special little project. I, I, I also, am, um, as much as I can, as, as I have time for, I go out and I like glean for fruit. So, we harvest wild um, native elderberry like along the waysides and we co-ferment with that. Um, we harvest, I ha- harvest a lot of wild grapes um, as well. And I co-ferment with that. I call that my mm. viniferal. Um, everything, <laughs> everything. Lovely. Yeah. And so I. Did you, you trademark know, that one? It's I noticed some now. of your. Nice. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, just by usage. I know trademark yeah. a little bit. Um, I mean, I noticed you guys have some trademarks. So yeah, trademark well, clever. those get a little bit <sighs> trademarking. Naming is such a yeah. hard thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, but we also love, like you're talking about, like the prickly pear, um, you know, there are wild native elderberries out here and they're exquisite. And that's super cool. You know, we leave a lot for the birds. Yeah. I, I come, I just, I used to uh, apprentice or study with an herbalist. And so, um I know a little bit about herbalism and wild crafting and the way you don't take all from nature, right? You leave it for the birds, you right. leave it for the critters. I take my little part, I leave the rest for you. So it's always responsible 
foraging that goes on, but I'm always looking right. for like little seedling apples that are popping up or weird, you know, um, seedling pears on somebody's property. And they're like, do you want them? I'm like, yeah, I'll be right over and I'll get them. Um, you know, weird little crab apples in an industrial area, all that sort of stuff. So I love to go in and, and sort of glean for foraged or feral fruit um, and, and work with that. Because I, I think of ourselves as kind of food shed ferments. So as you were saying, you know, these things are growing here. They're doing well. They've, they naturalized there. They've adapted to, to being here. They don't require any work on my part, except for, you know, asking the plant if I could have some of its fruit and then fermenting with it. So I love to do that. Um, but yeah, we, we release probably like 25 different bottlings as well as can uh, ciders and co-ferments for the year. So at any given time, you're going to find something different and new. Um, and then as far as, uh, finding it outside of our cidery or off of our, you know, not on our online store or in our club, which is actually full. Um, we have a wait list on that. Um, we just have a handful of accounts that we work with locally. They're super great. And we like that. I've stopped chasing accounts. I'm not trying to dominate, you know, the shelves anywhere. If you want our stuff, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. Um, you know, like we really yeah. are mostly direct to consumer. And so we were really shockingly well situated that. during the pandemic when everybody, you know, all these bars and restaurants and places had when to close. A, we were like, that's fine. A, uh, just get it from us. And people can come and taste on Saturdays. Is that yeah, right? And we've, yeah. And we've started opening on Friday afternoons too. So it's at our cidery. Oh. We are in a warehouse district and so it's um you know it's not going to be a on a bucolic grounds um but we're in a nice little area we're in a you know it's an industrial area in windsor sheep nuzzling there's no but there's pictures of sheep i don't worry i made it look really cute inside um (laughs) but we're next to several wineries a distillery and a little uh brewery uh i mean a, a brewery and also a, a, a beer tap room. Um, and we just make the most of it. You know, we're just like a bunch of small little family run enterprises um, that all have other jobs. <laughs> you know, we all have other jobs and we're doing our, our projects here because we love it so much and we help each other out. And it's a really nice, it's actually a really nice, we call ourselves artisan alley, but it's just a really nice little vibe. Um, and yeah, and if you come to visit us, you know, it's like coming to our living room, but like cuter and cleaner and no cats. It's just, <laughs> you know, I try to make it, we try to make it really welcoming and our tasting room host, David is super nice and he'll always make you laugh. And we just, you know, we, there's nothing, there's no errors about it. We don't try to make people feel uncomfortable if they've never had cider before. Um. Or if you know a lot about cider, we're willing to geek out with you. But like, we just want you to have fun, have a good time, learn a few things, maybe walk off with a few bottles, share them with somebody else, have them come and hang out with you next time and make it a real convivial place. So yeah, it's we welcome everybody to come. It's good. Oh, and we're dog friendly and all that stuff. Kid friendly. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. I love that. I love kid friendly too. Um, More... We should mix kids and alcohol more often. That's the um, only way I got through my early parenthood. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I mean that in the best way, I hope. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Ellen. I really appreciate this. It's been really a, just a treat to talk to you. And I, you're such a great spokesperson for so many great ideas. I, 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 you know, we should wrap this up, but I can't say thank you enough for, for being willing to do this. And, oh, well, uh, thank this, you too. This, it was really real fun. Treat. And um, everybody missed our earlier conversations about chickens and cats and pets and all that stuff. And you know, <laughs> that was fun too. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I, I appreciate you giving me time and space to, to talk. Hey, of course.